Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, is Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? I am well, Ian. How about yourself? Not too bad. Just uh, hanging out in a uh, typical New York winter where it is... Uh, I believe maxed out at 30 degrees today, so I'm sure you'll have a nice laugh at my expense. You need to be one of those snowbirds that like moves south for the for the, the winter do. and goes back up where there's no humidity during the uh, during the summer. I do. I have no tolerance for the cold. I really don't. It's 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 brutal. <laughs> I have no tolerance for the heat. So <laughs> maybe we should. <laughs> we'll just switch. Yeah, we can just swap uh, every six months. I'll move move up there, and you move down here. So this week. We are going to uh, be jumping into another one of our in-depth under-review episodes. We're going to be handling Chris Robinson and the New Earth Mud's second record, This Magnificent Distance. But before we get to that, I did want to just mention, since we're in a Chris Robinson mood, I did see on Jambase uh, the other day that as of the 10th of February, they've started recording the uh, tribute album for Neil Casal. And there's also a, uh, a film called Highway Butterfly that's also going to be associated with it. So I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that, David. Uh, if you had heard about it or uh, if that's something that interests you, it sounds like they got a, a lot of cool artists uh, involved in it. Kind of spearheading the whole thing is uh, Dave Schools, who was obviously from Widespread Panic, but he was also with Neil in the Hardworking Americans. Yes, I am really excited about it. I think it's going to be cool. I, I'm a fan of these kinds of albums. I've obviously not the circumstances with which we have to come across it, but um, I, I'm a fan of these things and um, really enjoy them. And you know, his a lot of his solo stuff is kind of hard to find online. So if they're going to strictly do his solo stuff, I think it's going to be interesting. I saw I was lucky enough to go see the last show that Ryan Adams and the Cardinals ever played together. He sang, I think, one or two songs there from his solo, one of his solo albums, and uh, I thought it was really, really good. Just a very talented guy, had a great voice, and just could play, you know, really kind of anything on um, guitar. He played a, you know, number of styles, and so I'm, I'm anxious to see like how eclectic it's going to be. Going to be for a good cause, and uh, I'm, I'm a big widespread Panic fan, and I like Dave School, so I think he's going to do a good job on it. It was his friend. It was his bandmate, so you know he's not going to go halfway with it. He's going to go all in. Yeah, and they said that the, the first session is with uh, uh, Billy Strings, who was in Circles Around the Sun. And then, you know, as they do the sessions, they'll announce and put up videos of each person recording. So they're kind of keeping slightly tight-lipped on the uh, roster as to who's participating. You know, I, I have to think, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Robinson would be involved in some way. Yeah, and, and you wonder. I, I don't know. Ron Adams got a little bit of baggage associated with him right now. Um, mm. That he, I, you wonder if he's going to be on there. I, I, I'm anxious to see how that's going to turn out. I'll, I'll definitely buy it anyway, just to help support the cause. Yeah, I mean, it would be a shame. You know, I know, right? Like you said, Ryan Adams has had uh, had some woes as of late, but it really, it, you'd have to include him in something to do with Neil. I mean, they spent so much time working together, and I'm sure they were friends to, to some kind of degree. Yeah, and I mean, his time with the Cardinals, especially those live shows, I mean, mm. that that show that I saw them was, like I said, was the last one they played. That's one of the best concerts I've ever been to. 
and he really added a lot of stuff to material that he didn't record on. And of course the stuff he recorded with, with Ryan Adams was great. So yeah, it's going to be fun. All the uh, proceeds from that go to the uh, charitable organization, uh, Music Cares. I'm going to definitely pick it up when it's released, just uh, you know, by virtue of the fact that it uh, benefits a good cause. Agreed. So let's dive right in, shall we? We're going to be discussing This Magnificent Distance today. And that was Chris Robinson and the New Earth Mud's second record. For me, it was a highly anticipated record. I was very big into Chris's solo career during that first hiatus you know if uh, not that i picked sides but i at that time i i followed his stuff a bit more than rich even though i really liked hookah brown i kind of gravitated a bit more to new earth mud and that would subsequently reverse for me i became very deep into uh rich's stuff later and uh you know i wasn't 100 percent on board with the with the brotherhood but up, leading up to the recording of this second record the band toured for the majority of 2003 and the fall of 2003 they they were the opening act for government mule during that whole run of shows maybe about 20 shows or so they debuted a lot of these songs and played them live before the you know before the record came out and there's a lot of songs that they played that didn't make the record but i mean i like the material from then and uh, you know we'll get into live versus how they came out on the studio album but i don't know what's your relationship with this album david were you a fan at the time or yes and i, I was kind of like you i followed chris closer than i did rich at the time and I, I remember being on the message boards uh hearing about mother of stone well before it came out on the album uh one that everybody was hoping was going to make it but it didn't if i remember correctly was reflections on a broken mirror which that made it later on a crb release uh, I remember hearing about uh, 40 Days and uh, Girl on the Mountain. Those are the ones that it seemed like I remember hearing about. And I was very, very excited about this album because we did we already did our New Earth Mud al- album review. And, I mean, there's like four or five songs on there that I think are pretty good to, to really good. And the rest I don't really care for. And I did not really appreciate some of the more singer-songwriter stuff about that first album. And this album, the way they toured and, and with who was in the band, it really gave me hope that this was going to be more of kind of a band effort and not a singer-songwriter thing. And that came out to be the case, very much so. And so I was really, really excited about it coming out, very excited. And when we get to a specific song, I'll, I'll kind of relate to why this album's kind of so special to me. To me, it's one of the most schizophrenic releases I've ever seen in my life. You have some some really heavy songs, and then you have hey, maybe one singer songwriter type song, and then you have some like really good ballads. The psychedelia of um, "Girl in the Mountain," you know, and "Mother of Stone" kind of had almost like a Santana type feel to it. Um, th- there was really no cohesion as far as the sound of the album. All the songs were were their own monster. Uh, which sometimes that frustrates me, but on this it didn't. And people may get mad at me for saying this. Just from a strict vocal point of view, this may be Chris's best album he's ever done. His voice, his voice was spared because his voice was shot at the end of that Lions tour, and so he had a couple of years of of not having to try to play over over Rich and and everybody else in the band and just sing. And it it's kind of like now, like when I went to see As a Crow Flies, that's one of the best I've ever heard Chris sound in my life because he hadn't you know done those songs in so long. And so I think his voice sounds great on this, and I think. It, to me, his best vocal work in The Crows was uh, Three Snakes. I, I thought his vocals on it were spot on, and he really could convey a lot of emotion. But 
there's some very, for me, there's, and I'll get into it, some very personal and moving songs on this album that I think he just nails. And I'm, I'm more of a fan of this than I am some of the stuff on CRB. There's some stuff on that Big Moon Ritual that honestly I could see making it onto this album if, if he had, you know, had written it then. This album, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I may say I like it a little bit more than Ceaseless Sight as far as the side projects go. So you're trying, you're trying to break my heart, aren't you? Trying to trigger you. Know, you. Trying to trigger you know how you. I feel about that Ceaseless Sight. Hey, and everybody, so that Ian's feelings don't get hurt, can you please go and listen to our Ceaseless Sight episode because it's our least listened to one, and it, still it kills it kills Ian. He's been trying to plug it on social media, and I think we got ten additional listens to it. <laughs> It's gotten twenty since then. <laughs> maybe, maybe send it to some people and just say, "Hey, can you hit play on this so it'll up the numbers for Ian?" Because I don't want him having a breakdown because yeah. that's his no. favorite album of all time, and it's our by far our least listened to episode. But um, yeah, so with this record though, this kind of was like the um, the closing chapter for at least the New Earth Mud that involved Paul Stacy and his brother Jeremy, because the band that toured this record didn't include them. Audley Freed makes several appearances on this album and it was kind of introduced through this album and then he ended up being in the touring band for that. So it's kind of a an interesting crossover, you know? Yeah, and I thought it was a great progression from the first album. If if you look at that first album, the song and there's a few songs that I think can make it onto this one. Obviously I think Sunday Sound would fit in on this. Silver Car would. But other than that, not most of the songs on that album, I don't think would would fit in on this one. And like I said, this was much more of a band effort. And you know, his shows got to be really, really good around this time. And mm. uh, I, I've gone back and listened to some here recently. They were really hitting their stride. And then, you know, it's not long after this album comes out that every the rug got pulled out from underneath them, and you know, the brothers got back together. But uh, just it's just a really good album that I think holds up over time and. You don't hear a lot of people hating on it like you do um, the first New Earth Mud album or some of the CRB stuff. I think if you're if you're a classic era Black Crows fan and you wanted to listen to something that was reminiscent of the Black Crows, you got it to me. You got to go with Ceaseless Sight in this. I, I ultimately think that this album is divided like an album. The first six tracks are like one side and the last six are the other side and they kind of work well as two individual groupings like that. I mean, it is to me, it is sequenced in a good way as like all over the map as it can tend to be. It is sequenced correctly in my, and that's important to me. I like albums, you know, in an age of a lot of people just downloading individual songs or things like that. I still like albums, like things that, that run start to finish and kind of sound linear and like they belong together. You know, I don't know about you, but well, one of the things I thought was interesting about it is it starts out heavy and then it gets really chilled and then it gets kind of, you know, a couple of ballads. And then the last four or five songs are, they just seem to get heavier each one, which is unusual for an album. Usually you save some of your softer stuff for there toward the end, but this one, I man, it just kept ramping up. Yeah. It peaks and comes down and peaks again, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. We'll, uh, we'll start going track by track like we normally do. The first track on this record was actually the first single. I remember seeing them performing on uh, Letterman because, you know, the Robinsons always had a good relationship with David Letterman. And that's a track called 40 Days. (laughs) 
I like this track. I always thought it was very upbeat, very rocking, you know, which I coming off of his first record, which was a little more subdued. It was surprising to hear this 40 days. If I'm not mistaken, didn't make its debut live prior to the album. If it did, it wasn't played as much. But um, this kind of this song and a few others support my belief at the time that Chris was very into Bob Dylan because his vocal delivery on this track and on on others, but particularly on this one, is very Dylan-esque, the way Dylan sings like rock tunes. Uh, but I like it. I always thought it was a great song. I thought it was an excellent first single. I don't know how you could hear this and not be excited about the record that was to follow. I thought it, I thought it was a home run of a single for a couple of reasons. One, uh, if you were kind of thrown off by the kind of singer songwriter nature of that first album, and you hear this, you're like, oh, this is going to be a rock record. And also, it's it's a uh, it was a great kind of it, it showed a great growth in their in their sound. And one of the things that always draws me to this song is Chris sings these lyrics to to this song kind of with a bit of aggression to them. Yeah. I saw it on David Letterman and, and, and thought it was amazing. Yeah, it's it's definitely and this track is is credited solely to Chris, so it's it's all his uh, creation. I mean, but uh, Paul Stacy pulls out a tremendous solo on this track, uh, unbelievably good. Um, it really really sets the pace. All right, so following up Forty Days um, is a is a song that uh, definitely was debuted live because I saw it live and. Uh, I actually uh, collected all of the shows from that little 03 run opening for uh, Government Mule. So I, I heard this one many times, and that I think it's a great tune. It's Girl on the Mountain. I think this is one of his better vocal performances on anything, really. Uh, you know, it's a very strong uh, lyrically and, and vocally. And, and I like the little very quiet breakdown in the middle where he, he sings something and his voice just kind of echoes off for a little bit over guitars and then it fires back up. I think it's a great tune and definitely a, a nice one to be in the second position. What's your What's your take on this one, David? I, here's where we disagree. It's one of my least favorite ones on the album. Is that um, right? It, it really is. It never has grabbed me like it has a lot of people. I know it has a lot of jam potential in it, and you can kind of make it kind of pretty psychedelic and stuff like that if you wanted to. It just and it's one of the ones I was most excited about hearing because I didn't have a lot of New Earth Mud shows when all this was going on, and so I heard a lot of people talk about this, and maybe I built it up in my mind a whole lot. I, I do think it's an example. It's two songs on here where I think he tries to make them epics. Kind of, you know, kind of go start off uh, slow and have this big chorus and, and big part of it. But uh, it just never did work for me. And I, I was listening to it this morning, and it's I still have the same opinion on it. I always liked it really. I mean, live, I thought the live version was a little more direct. This has a lot of uh, production laid on it. But I still like George Lax did the keyboards on this, and he... He really added some really cool colorations to this. Like if you listen, just if you kind of hone in on what he's doing, I, I always thought that kind of made the track. Oh, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I thought this would be uh, a, a little higher up there for you. 
No, it, it just it hasn't. My opinion hasn't changed over the years either. Well, I'm <laughs> stunned. <laughs> but the uh, the next track on the record actually, surprisingly, is one of my least favorite on the record. But it's not because I don't like the song. I don't like the, the what they did to it on the record as much, and that's um, Mother of Stone. song goes back a bit to when chris and paul were uh doing acoustic gigs just together it's a song that's on there it's on their original demos um it's on that vinyl only release that's uh called uh, the destruction of cities by space vehicles or something of that nature and um i always like the real stripped down acoustic version of that this is kind of gets a the, the one on the record kind of gets a a latin uh, percussion involved into it and then more of electric guitars layered over it and it, it doesn't do as much for me it doesn't make it a bad song necessarily i just don't i was disappointed with the treatment it got it on the record versus what i saw live well see i never got to see it live beforehand so i didn't have anything to compare it to i actually like the production on it, the percussion and, and all of that I, I like everything about the song except the chorus for whatever reason the chorus hasn't done a whole lot for me but it's it's a unique sounding song like i said We've had, we're three songs in, we have one that's just a straight up rock song, we have one that's, you know, kind of psychedelic, and then you kind of have, you know, the Latin inspired feel of Mother of Stone, so it goes along with my theory, this is a very schizophrenic album, and to me, talking about placing on the album, it's in a good spot, you know, I like number the third song usually to be a, a, a slower song, but to me, Girl on the Mountain as number two was always a little perplexing to me. I, I would have put like maybe surgical glove or something like that at number two, but I think mother, mother stones in the right spot. And this was one that there was a lot of buzz about, you know, how is it going to sound when they put it on record? And you just kind of said you were disappointed at how it sounded based on older versions of it. But uh, like I said, I've never enjoyed the course, the rest of the song I like, and I love the production on it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to come off as, as uh, giving the impression. I don't like, the version that's on the album, I think it's just because the, that that percussion is great. You know the way they perform it, and the, and the guitars are great. But I, it's just something about that that original stripped down acoustic version that is so visceral that is is, is great. I think it conveys the emotion of the song a bit better. Sometimes in the studio, artists tend to get a little more creative and they start layering things, and you, you lose that original. Some songs are just meant to be guitar and a voice in some cases and that to me it worked a lot better for mother of stone but, yeah I could, uh, I could see how if you heard this basically in a stripped down version of just him and paul stacy that you you might appreciate that differently but uh i'm i'm 
keeping my fingers crossed here. The uh, the next song on the record is uh, I'm gonna call it by its original title because I preferred the original title when it was making the rounds uh, on tour. It was called Last of the Old Time Train Robbers, which I th- I always thought was a much cooler title. I don't know why it got abbreviated to Train Robbers. Train Robbers, I think, is great. It's one of those story-type songs, and, and I like the story. I like the, the acoustic guitar that, that Chris plays. I, just, I really like the lyrics, you know, split up the money and go your own way. And I, I, it, To me, it would be at home on uh, Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection. It's like right off of that. It's, it's that kind of vibe and that kind of style of song, and I, I always loved it. I actually think it came out better on the record than when I heard it live. I always enjoyed it. What's your take on it? Uh, love the course. Um, I think some of the verses go a little bit too long. You know, this is kind of his first foray into this, like, um, kind of romanticizing the wild, wild west, the kind of vagabond life, which, you know, he, I think, went overboard on at times with the CRB. I was going back and looking at some early CRB shows, and uh, this one, you know, got broken out by them. I think it's a unique song. I, like I said, I love the course. I think. The verses could have been maybe trimmed up by 10 or 15 seconds or so, and it, it made it a little bit better for me. But, uh, yeah, just a, a really, really good effort by Chris and the vocals on it. Uh, there's nothing negative I have to say about about them. So the, the CRB did this too, and I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it was, it was really, really early on, you know, when they didn't have much of a catalog. Mm-hmm. I actually I, I bought a CRB show from 2012, that um, Betty Cantor Jackson mixed uh, from San Francisco, and I was so I was going through on Crow's Base and looking at some of that. But yeah, it's a this is a this is a definitely a good song, and it it kind of it's kind of an epic an epic ballad, not in the scorned love lover type way, just more of a you know here's kind of a story, almost kind of like you know a poncho and lefty, uh, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, but like I said, I, I think he relied sometimes too much on that imagery in the CRB. But uh, to hear it, it's fine. Yeah, I mean you're definitely right. This this is kind of like the uh, the first sprout of what would become that tree of that ideology that he kind of put forth. I mean, what was there? What was the CRB treatment of this like? Was it pretty faithful to this version, or did they kind of go elsewhere? Yeah, it? it it was early on. They hadn't become who they would be at that point. Gotcha. Well, following up is a uh, a track called Like a Tumbleweed in Eden.
it's recorded, there's a lot of uh, Paul Stacey layers a kind of a, a lilting acoustic guitar line over the main acoustic, and it's re- really nice. I really, really like the way this track came out. I always this was another song again that they kind of debuted on tour, and I always liked it then. Just just good all over. I mean, I really have nothing negative to say about this. Yeah, it, it, the production value on this album is superb. Stacy did a uh, absolutely amazing job on that, and this is one that CRB did play. They played rather routinely there for a while. I prefer this version of it. Uh, I just think it's a great song, and I, I love just kind of the the simpleness of it. But then, like you said, he added some different layers to it. A great vocal performance by Chris. You know, Chris's vocals on this album are just uh, they just blow me away, and this is another example of that. Yeah, there's one little moment in this where he says, um, you know, I'll see you in the by and by. And his voice, when he says that, almost has like a slight little break to it. it really pleased with the, the entire vocal take on it. And the whole album, really, like you, you've been saying, the, the vocals really stand out. So that brings us to, instead of shortening the title, this song got a much longer title when it came out on the record. And it's another uh, one of those epic type songs that uh, you had mentioned earlier. And that's... When the cold wind blows at the dark end of the night. This one was originally called Cold Wind Blows when it was on all the bootlegs and stuff. And uh, I like this song. I really think, you know, because it's it's very quiet when it starts. And then when he goes into the the lyrics where, you know, I am so much more aware and he kind of amps up the the vocal delivery and goes into the chorus. I I, even now I just recently re-listened to the record and I think that is so powerful. I'm, I'm still blown away by this this tune. 
This one is one, if you only listen to the first 30 seconds of it and you move on to another song, oh, that's a nice little quiet ballad there. Really, this this song's kind of out of character for Chris. It's a big, blustery, epic chorus, you know, that, that builds and builds, and it's a really, really big song. I never have been the biggest fan of it. It's a it's a longest song on the album, too, if I remember correctly. It's like, you know, like seven, yes. over seven minutes. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So this it's not one of my favorites, but uh, I understand why people would like it. And like I said, it just seems uncharacteristic. It's just this. Like I said, it's he has a little bit of everything in this album, and this was definitely this is an epic song. When I saw them on this tour, I at the time I was involved in the uh, hallucination nation, pretty heavy the uh, the message board that was associated with uh, Chris and New Earth Mud, and uh, you know I met some really nice folks there, and so I traveled down to New Orleans at the Sanger Theater on Halloween to see the New Earth Mud, and then they were opening for Government Mule, of course. And, uh, I mean, it was Government Mule's crowd, and when they knocked into this song, it, people were just, you know, jaws dropped. I mean, you know, it was it really had an impact on the crowd, which I thought was cool, considering it wasn't 100% their crowd. Yeah, I can definitely see how if you're going to see that and they play this, you really get into it. I never heard it live, so uh, I need to. I have somebody sending me several shows, soundboards, I think. So I'm hoping that's on one of them. Uh, I, I can listen to it because it's not on any of the shows that I have. Yeah, even the uh, the audience recordings, because a lot of them from that little short run that they did opening for the Mule, um, a lot of those audience recordings, either because the uh, acoustics of the particular venues were great or the, the, the crowds were a little more sparse because they were the opening band. A lot of those audience recordings sound phenomenal, like, uh, you know, very close to soundboard quality. So that moves us right along, and we're going to go back into some uh, singer-songwriter territory here, starting, you know, what I kind of mentally categorize as the second half of the album. Um, And that's If You See California. Think of me when you're lost in your day. What a great song. Oh, unbelievable. It's like it's like Chris's love letter to California. And we know we know how he feels about California. <laughs> well, and I think also it's kind of a thinly veiled love letter to Kate Hudson too. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, this is one of my favorite songs on the album and it's one of the great examples of like ear candy that's on here. I you know, like I said, I'm not a musician, so sometimes I sound like very uneducated when I try to talk about the actual music and the the technical aspects of it. But when he gets through kind of the first stanza and the electric guitar comes in, 
um, there between the, before the next stanza. I don't know. It's, it's to me, it's just it sounds perfect. It's very moving. This is when you listen to it and you're like, it puts you in a good mood. It's a happy song, um, and he just does his vocals on it are great. And it's just to me, it's just a great, great song. And this is one of my favorite songs on the album. There's three or four that are basically all tied for number one. And this is one of them. Uh, and, uh, it just, it makes you feel good. And, you know, sometimes we, we cling to music when we feel bad and look for it to make us feel better. And this is one of the ones that's going to make you feel better every time. It's just a happy song. I don't, did he, uh, did they continue this one with uh, CRB or was that, uh, did this kind of get don't left? Remember if they uh, played that with the CRB. I didn't really get into the CRB until a couple years ago. Like we've talked about, you and I are both kind of archivists. We buy everything that comes out. So every time CRB released an album, I would always buy it. But uh, I definitely didn't follow them as closely as, you know, I would the Crows or whatever. So I would have to go to kind of Crows base and take a look at that. But I don't think if they did play it, I don't think they played it a lot. They may have played yeah, it early. Yeah. They may have played it a lot early on. We didn't have much of a catalog, but. And that um, is followed by another track that's quite similarly uh, themed, and that's a track called The Never Empty Table. This is kind of the first track that kind of falls a little bit flat for me. Uh, it, it kind of follows into what you were saying about that vagabond lifestyle. Like it's kind of like a, a call to those people. Like you always have a spot with me. He's kind of saying, at least that's how I interpreted it. But the thing that bothers me about this song is that the chorus of this song is Good Friday. It's the melody to Good Friday. And it always distracts me from the rest of the song. I don't know if you ever picked up on that, but it's it's seriously it's almost exactly the Good Friday. This is going to be like uh, probably the most vehement disagreement I've ever had with you. <laughs> this is Uh-oh. this is legitimately one of my favorite songs that Chris Robinson plays on. Whether it's the Black Crows, CRB, New Earth Mud, let me tell you why. 
I'll spare you the details, but this album, I think it was June the 29th or the 24th. I can't remember. It came out in 2004. Uh, at about 1.30 on that day, uh, that day turned out to be probably the worst day of my life. I got some really horrific news. And about 3 o'clock that, you know, that day, UPS guy banged on my door and delivered this CD. And, you know, we always talk about the, the healing power of music and, you know, I... I Regardless of what kind of mood I'm in, I can always find a Black Crows or a Black Crows related song that I can play to to help that mood, whatever it is. And so, like I said, it's the worst day of my life, and and I put put the CD in, and I got to this song, and there was just something about it that just moved me, you know. And everybody has a di- you know different interpretations of their of of music, and I, I kind of almost always. Um, almost thought it had a very spiritual, almost Christian type element to it along the lines of I'm a broken person. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to accept you for who you are. Come on in. And, you know, we got to get through this thing through life together. And that's how I interpreted it, especially at that moment in my life. And so uh, I was kind of telling my wife that story. She was, I was listening to it while we were in the room together and I can put that song in and it takes me back to that moment uh, of that day in not a bad way, in a comforting way. And I don't know, I don't know if there's many more songs that can do that to me as much as that song does. Descending does, uh, you know, I mentioned here, uh, I guess it's a couple months ago, basically my best friend growing up died um, this summer. And within like 10 minutes of hearing uh, of his death, uh, I put descending on and there's some healing to that song. And so for me personally, uh, this one just really strikes at my heart and I, I just really love it. And if I had to start naming like top 10 songs that Chris Robinson's played on, it's going to be in my top 10 every time. Now on a happier note, I don't ever remember hearing it and hearing good Friday. Now that you've said that, as soon as we get done with this podcast, I'm going to go throw it in and listen to it and see, um, you know, see if I hear that because, um, now that you say that I'm trying to think through it and I, I think I can kind of hear it. And so, uh, we'll have to, I'm never, you have more educated ears than, than I do, but yeah, the, the, regardless of, of, of my personal story with this, I, I think I would always like this song. I just think it's a, I think it's a great tune and the vocal effort by Chris on this, he just conveys so much emotion on it. And, one of the things that I really liked about this album was he was able to convey kind of vulnerability with his voice that maybe he couldn't do all the time with the crows because he has to sc- not scream, but he has to sing at such a high level that it distorts his vocals at times. And those years of not having to do that really preserved his voice. And I just, I just, I keep going back to it, but it, the vocals on this album are just amazing. Yeah. I mean, I have to agree. The vocals are, are, fantastic on this album and uh you know for you just to, to say that and, and and your personal experience with it i mean that's what music is really all about and that's why i take music very seriously yeah, and i'm yeah. sure you do and that's i think why so many people take the black crows so seriously is their music affects a lot of people whether it be the black crows music their solo endeavors you know there's yeah. things that rich has done and chris has done and mark and all their solo things that just to touch you in a certain way. And I, I've never had as frequent of experiences than I do with their music. And, you know, that's, that's a great thing. And I, 
I, I do want to clarify, and it's it's not because of your story. I don't dislike the song. It just takes me out of it because I made that connection with yeah, the Friday. Yeah. Well, you now know. I'm gonna have to go listen to. It. Hopefully, you didn't ruin it for me. Oh, don't lay that heaviness on me, David. I don't want to rob you of this song. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the the next track is a tune called "Eagles on the Highway." Eagles on the highway Got the wind in my hand My other one is smiling Ooh, now that we've begun Can we roll away the storm? I like the chorus section of this. I think the verse part for me is kind of just, it's almost like filler within a song. Like it's just getting you to that chorus and the chorus is really cool. But I, I don't know. The verses don't do much for me. I don't know what your what your thoughts I on this one. I am in complete agreement with you. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. I'm in complete agreement with you on that. The chorus of this is fantastic. Very bluesy. Has a has a, a cool swing to it that I really like, but I'm like you. I find myself when it gets to the when it gets to the verses, just being kind of like, let's get let's hold, let's get through it. Yeah, it's just it's like, but the choruses are great. I mean, it's, like, it's almost really... like, it's almost like they had this great chord progression and kind of great chorus and didn't know what to do with the rest of it. Yeah, maybe uh, it needed a little more time in the uh, in the oven. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and that leads to tenth track on this album. I always found it to be an odd title, but it's uh, it's called Surgical Glove. I had mentioned earlier um, Chris's predilection to Dylan-esque things, and the way he delivers these verses to me is like 
that's that's straight off a Dylan record, you know, and not in a bad way. It's really like the most flattering reinterpretation of of Dylan's style to me. And I, I, I didn't I didn't like this song when the record first came out. But years later, going back to it, and especially uh, you know more recently preparing for the episode, listening to it, I, I found a new appreciation for it. I, I think it's a great, great rock tune. He sings it with a lot of conviction. If I didn't have my connection to uh, Never Empty Table that I do, this is, in my opinion, the best song on the album. Um, man, the lyrics on it are great. It's got to be partially about Mark Ford, isn't it? It's got to be. Is I, it could be. You know what? I'll have to re-listen em- to the lyrics I, with that in mind. Empty bottles and forgotten songs, but if now I get my timeline kind of messed up, they had patched things up at this point, right? Because they had done those Malibu in shows together before this was recorded, right? Yeah, the Malibu in shows were in two thousand two. I don't know if they were just prior to or just after the release of his first album. All right, so this also could be one of those things. Like I'm a big Alice in Chains fan, and and whenever I listen to any. Jerry Cantrell solo song or William Duvall version of Alice in Chains song. I think every song's about Lane Staley. So this could be like hindsight's twenty twenty. But go back and read some of the lyrics about it. I've always thought it, it was at least partially inspired by Mark. May not be. Man, he sings this song with such conviction, and then the slide guitar work on it. It's there is. It's great. I would have liked to have seen Rich get his hands on this one. Rich and Mark, honestly, and, and and put that on a Crows album. But uh, this is my favorite song on the album. It definitely is great. There is some great slide work on there. Rich definitely would have had a field day slide-wise. And isn't that a shame, though? I, this isn't the only song that I've had that similar thought about. It's like, man, if this had been introduced into the Black Crows band setting, like, you know, around 05, 06, around not long after these songs were this song was created or some of the others, they really would have, I think it would have, broaden their spectrum a little bit you well, know? and i mean how many times have we talked about the given key oh god you know imagine mark ford on that one yeah if i mean people the, don't know what the given key is it's on the ceaseless site and it can be and it can be heard on it. our least downloaded episodes like we said <laughs> it's public service announcement for ian sanity please go and listen to that uh, and send it to a friend tell them to hit play <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, man, this song, and here's the thing. I just reached out to some folks on Twitter and on Facebook before this episode. I don't remember ever seeing it pop up on a set list and, uh, I tweeted it out and somebody took a picture of a set list of a, of a show they've got and it said first time played on it. So obviously it did get played uh, some, uh, I would think live, this could be a barn burner. This and many other of these songs definitely live are great. I never... I don't know if when they swung by my area, they played this one live. I unfortunately, due to some circumstances at the time, missed them on the 2004 tour. Um, so I never saw some of these you know, in concert. The only experience I had with a lot of these was that pre-album little run they did. It, this definitely had to be on fire live. There's no way it couldn't have been, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and no offense to Audley Freed, who's a great guitar player, but... Like is it, can you imagine Rich and Mark trading off on this one? Who? Although I will give uh, Audley credit, as as much as I th- thought he he sounded kind of disjointed on the Crows material, he kind of comes into his own here. I think maybe because it was more his material, uh, and that he was involved with the creation of it. You know, he definitely. I my appreciation for Audley as a player increased with him. You know, on this record and his, you know, the recordings I've heard of the subsequent tour. Yeah, I, I thought Audley did great in, in this band. And I mean, if Chris 
when the crows are going hiatus again or they break up or whatever they do or have some time off, it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt my feelings for him to put the new earth mud back together. No, not at all. Or at I, least I, go in that direction. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of an abandoned direction. Like once the new earth mud stopped and the crows got back together, you know, when he when he picked up the solo thing again, it was a completely different vibe in a way. And it's it's almost as if the new earth mud period has kind of been erased from history in a way. It's it's odd. Right. Because both albums are out of print. And uh, you know they're hard to get your hands on, and uh, you don't hear you know you don't hear them talked about as much. This is a real shame, especially this one. Yeah, uh, this is one I would love for them to put out on a vinyl reissue. Oh, that'd be great. But uh, so penultimate track next, second to last, and that is a little track called "Piece of Wind." <laughs> in on a little secret on this one so up on this song was I that for around this time and for many years following my email address was peaceofwind at yahoo.com so <laughs> that could have I, a I lot like, of meanings <laughs> but uh, I really like this track it's kind of Chris's like hippie anthem one of uh, many yeah I don't have any problem I've always liked it I always thought it was oddly placed along with the the last three songs I thought were always oddly placed on the album. It's a hippie, a hippie vibe set to a straight up rock song, you know, very much a hard rock vibe on it. Very different from a lot of stuff that he does. And yeah, it's just a great track. I mean, this, to me, the back half of this album is a lot stronger than the first half. I could see that. Yeah. In terms of like the more of the rock and stuff comes in the second half. And, uh, if you want to talk rocking. We're going to talk the closing track here, and that's a track called Sea of Love. Now, this track, I know I've said this like 5,000 times on this episode already, but when I saw them in the, at that uh, New Orleans show and they played this, I could not get this song out of my head. It was my focus. I couldn't wait to get a hand on a, a bootleg copy of it so I could listen to it again and again. I love this song. This is probably my favorite song on the record. 
just because of the grittiness of the riff. I mean, it's not the most complicated guitar work, but it's it's guttural and it's 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 emotional. And the lyrics to this, I just I just love. I love everything about this song. To me, this is an excellent closer, and it's it, this is my top pick for this record. I, I can't argue with that at all. And I'm always very impressed when an artist puts out an album and they put a killer closing track on there. I think it shows uh, maturity and it shows confidence in, in their material. Um, yeah, the opening riff and everything on this, man, is really kind of... I can't think of anything Chris has ever been involved in that had that hard of an edge to it, really. Um, and it just seems kind of... You think about the CRB, and this is one of those songs that makes you think it's completely out of character. for He would never play that now. No. not At least not with the CRB. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, man, this, it's a fun one to listen to, and definitely a straight-ahead rocker, and... You know, very kind of simple song structure, but I can't complain with it at all. Other, you know, it just polishes off a really, really good album. I really wish at the time that Chris and Rich were more accepting of each other as songwriters because, you know, Chris obviously had things like this to offer. And, you know, I think I think because of the, the vibe he was trying to create and the direction he was trying to go in at the time, he kind of suppressed some of Rich's more you know, harder leanings. And I, I, I really wish they had compromised a little bit more. And then some material like this could have ended up on some of the black crows records. Yeah, I agree. If they would have just uh, talked a little bit more and uh, may have a little compromise, we could have maybe avoided some of the problems that we had on some of those last few albums. Now being a fan of this album, I did seek out and uh, spend quite a pretty penny at the time on the Japanese edition. Because, you know, I don't know if uh, some people might not be aware of this, but the reason why Japanese editions always have bonus tracks on them is because records are so much more expensive in Japan. They put extra tracks on them to make it more attractive for people to purchase them or think they're getting something extra. So a lot of times there's some great stuff on the, you know, buried on these Japanese imports and things. I can't tell you how disappointed I was laying out the money for this Japanese edition. The two bonus tracks on this were an alternate version of Like a Tumbleweed in Eden that, uh, if you put a gun to my head, I can't tell the difference. And it's, a just, very more stri- it's just more stripped down. Yeah, I mean, and and an instrumental called uh, Prayer for the Gravity Man, which is kind of cool, but it's like two and a half minutes. It doesn't really take off. It's almost like an unfinished idea or something. I don't know. I, I had sent those songs to you because you hadn't heard them. What did you think of each of them? I think your uh, your impression was is spot on of both of them. Like <laughs> I would have been upset. Like, but I mean, hey, you know, we talk about being archivists. You got to have it, right? So, yeah. you, you know, you have to take that chance. But yeah, I I wouldn't have shelled out big money for that. No, and I think I actually ditched my original version of it because I bought the import. I think I gave the other one to somebody else. You know, yeah, you, that's always giving do. my records away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that's that's this magnificent distance in a nutshell. Overall, I think it's a very strong record. I think it's uh, probably of of all his solo material that I've you know fully heard, uh, it's the best in my opinion. And um, I I think that's why I wasn't into the CRB as much because I hoped he would stay on this kind of trajectory, and he didn't. He obviously went a completely different direction. And um, you know, not that I'm not a fan of jamming, but I like jams to be you know not structured but they kind of have a direction and i to me a lot of the the crb stuff was kind of meandering and um you know those are the 
the things I don't get on board with as much. I would have liked to have seen uh, more of this type of thing happening. I, I'm in complete agreement with you. I like a good jam, but I like for it to have a point mm. and, and, and build to a crescendo like Wiser Time does, like my morning song mm-hmm. does, like some of the versions of Soul Singing with Mark. Um, yes. I, I just don't like meandering for the sake of meandering. And, you know, that's always a good thing. Thorn in My Pride never disappointed when they jammed on it. My morning song, they no. were disappointed. Some of the stuff with the CRB, I think, was just long for the sake of being long. And so, like, so with some of those jams, they'd be four- and five-minute jams, and minute four sounded just like minute two. And so mm-hmm. when you get into that situation, I I, I, I can't handle it. Um, it just gets too repetitive and too, you know, too much noodling to it. Yeah, I, I think at... I think had these two albums not come out and he'd come out with the CRB, people would have been more accepting of it. But you had this to go back on. And I mean, you, he really built some serious steam between new earth mud and this magnificent distance. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I was, I mean, I was excited. Obviously I was excited. The crows were getting back with Ford and everything, but on some level I was a little sad because I'd gotten so into new earth mud and you knew that was probably done. Um, you know, he's going to get back with the band and he's not going to invite Audley. I mean, I'm sure that's kind of a weird situation. I always thought after the Crows got back together in 05, I said, I, I figured like this would come, it would come to a point and they would do some solo stuff and then do the Black Crows and kind of alternate. So I just at first assumed that he would just kind of head back to the New Earth Mud and, and pick that up. And, you know, obviously we know all know how it went otherwise. And don't get me wrong, like like you said. Jams are fine, but the worst elements of uh, the Grateful Dead and the Fish scene to me is the is the the noodling, the, just the, the directionless stuff. I mean, the Grateful Dead have put out some of the greatest records I've ever heard, and they've also put out some of the worst stuff I've ever heard. And that's all. I, I don't begrudge anybody liking those full on spacey jams, but they just don't do much for me. And that's why, you know, like I said, I've always just appreciated this this much tighter material that was in the New Earth Mud. Not that they didn't jam live. Yeah, but it, it wasn't self-indulgent, and usually it had a purpose. Exactly. I mean, there were songs from around this time period, like Reflections on a Broken Mirror and uh, uh, High Speed Transportation, LA City Limit Blues, where those things stretched out, but they, they circled back, and it was kind of like a full statement. You know, it made sense. But uh, so all in all, I mean, what's your... Where does this stand in the the Black Crows universe for you? I give it like a solid eight and a half. If I were if I were to throw this like in the Crows rankings, it'd probably beat out Lions for like maybe number six or so. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see it. I mean, I do um, enjoy some of the material in this more than you know some uh, Crows material, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, what else can be said? It's just a fantastic record and it definitely stands the test of time because uh, I li- I haven't. I'd say it's easily been 10 years since I listened to this record and, you know, putting it on for the first time after that, you know, to get ready for the episode, I forgot how much I enjoyed it. And it'll definitely be one that I kind of introduced back into the rotation for quite some time now. Yeah. It's good. It's good to go back and listen to it. And it kind of brought back the memories of the hallucination nation, uh, message board and kind of that weird time when they weren't officially broken up, but they were broken up and, you had Rich was trying to figure out his path, you know, Hookah Brown, that didn't work out. And then, uh, you know, he released Paper, and then, you know, Chris had these two albums. And it definitely, at that point, Chris had a lot more steam behind him than Rich did. And, uh, you know, of course, they get back together, and then the the history of the Crows has changed forever with that 05-06 tour. But, yeah, I, I would love for Chris to go back into this direction. Yeah, oh, absolutely. 
And I would love to talk about uh, paper also, since you uh, mentioned it. But uh, we all know how Rich Robinson episodes go. So maybe we won't. <laughs> I'm bitter. Can you tell? Slightly. <laughs> hey, Ceaseless Sight's a tremendous album. Uh, I, I don't think paper, uh, I don't think as highly of paper as I do Ceaseless Sight. So I'm kind of worried what the download numbers would be. But uh, you never know. That could be the uh, the big one. You never know. Yeah. But, uh, so that's uh, that's all we got for this magnificent distance. And uh, David has left the uh, enviable task of choosing the outro music to me. So I I kind of decided because I had uh, I knew I'd be focusing on a little bit when we talked about the track. So I'm gonna uh, send us out with a nice live acoustic version. Chris Robinson and Paul Stacy performing "Mother of Stone." That's it for us this week. Stay tall, everybody. Hey, Bob. Give me some guitar.
you. Hang on. It's a State of America bonus track.